Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I normally highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforests.org. This is going to be kind of a different podcast. As most of you know, the Labor Day wildfires that hit Oregon have been one of the biggest disasters in state history. We've been covering this event closely before, during, and after the fires, so we're going to try to tell that story of exactly how this unfolded and some of the thoughts on what that means. But first, here's some guitar music to get us going. All right, David, so like I said in the introduction, this podcast is different. We've just been through an event that is going to change the state and our area for years to come. The number of wildfires is unprecedented in Oregon, and while we've had big fires in the past, this is the first time they've really swept through populated areas in such a dramatic way. Yeah, the numbers are actually still sort of being tallied at the various fires. And again, we won't know the full extent of the damage for quite some time, but these fires are really just jaw-dropping in their sort of destructive nature. And, and, and just all over the state, too. Yeah, from, I, from southern Oregon down in Medford and Ashland, the Mackenzie River area outside Eugene, around Blue River, and, of course, right here at home outside Salem in the Sandium Canyon. It's difficult because these are the places we know so well. We've reported a ton on southern Oregon, and I lived in southern Oregon for five, six years, spent a lot of the time in Mackenzie, but... I live basically outside the Sanium Canyon, um, was evacuated for three days and have a lot of close friends there. And I've just lost count of the number of people who I've talked to who've lost homes. Um, they're still looking for other people. And the damage is just, it's beyond words. Detroit, this area we know and love and honestly took for granted, it's just gone in the sense of the way we think of it. Gates has been badly impacted. The Little North Fork community up to Opal Creek, all of these areas through the Sanium Canyon are just never going to look the same. They're just going to be, in the short term and long term, a different place. Yeah, so what we wanted to do with this podcast is kind of just a debrief for Zach and I, sort of talk about how this happened. Um, we're going to start up with a kind of a lead up to the event. Um, you know, it was Labor Day weekend. Folks were out having a good time. We'll talk about the day it happened, how the fires formed and then spread, and sort of what we've seen in the aftermath. I think that the only positive from this is this this is going to be a teachable moment of some kind because, look, we weren't really prepared for this. There was signs that something could happen. We were following it closely. The weather folks were, but it was like we couldn't put it all together because something like this has just never happened in Oregon. We've seen it happen in California and thought, well, we don't get that kind of weather. We don't, we're not that dry. But now we know it can happen here. And so this event is going to shape the future of wildfire management in the state. So let's go ahead and throw it back to Labor Day weekend. Right. So wildfires are something that we cover really closely here at the Statesman Journal. I've been doing it closely for almost a decade. And honestly, the way this season was going, it was either normal or actually pretty quiet. Like if we would have ended in August, this would have been a really quiet season like 2019. It just it would have there wasn't that many fires. A few lightning storms had ignited fires in mid-August. 
Uh, the Green Ridge near Camp Sherman was probably the biggest example of that. But it wasn't that big of a deal. It was pretty much par for the course. But two that lasted and hung on for a little while were the Beachy Creek Fire in the Opal Creek Wilderness and the Lion's Head Fire, which started on Warm Springs and kind of grew onto the flanks of Mount Jefferson. Yeah, overall, it was a pretty light season. And honestly, we were kind of starting to let our guard down. Mm -hmm. We were slipping into fall, sort of expecting the weather to change. But, you know, then we sort of got this big weather event. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think we were starting to transition. We're thinking about school. Um, you know, we had just been through the pandemic and we were just getting ready for that fall thing, this sort of return to some semblance of normalcy. The first thing that caught my eye was just before Labor Day weekend, there was a sweeping shutdown of the Mount Jefferson Wilderness and the Pacific Crest Trail for seemingly no reason at the time when I first looked at it. And I noticed this because my buddy, he was planning to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from Sanium Pass uh, all the way north. He was finishing a segment that uh, he hadn't been able to complete previously. And so that Saturday, and it was September 5th, I helped him get around the closure by hiking into the Olali Lakes area via the Red Lake Trail. And as we're hiking up the trail that day, it's beautiful out. It's like the perfect fall day. It's like the crux of ideal Cascade Mountain hiking season. It's so beautiful. There's hardly any mosquitoes. And so I connect him with Pacific Crest Trail where it's open. And I decided to climb one of my favorite mountains it's called uh, Potato Butte. Um, and it offers this spectacular view of Mount Jefferson. So I'm climbing up this trail. It's, it's really steep, but eventually I'm starting to get views of the surrounding forest. And I see what at first looks like just a normal cloud um, on the horizon. But as I got higher, the cloud is rising and rising. And I realized that it's the, the lion's head fire, which was putting up what's called a protocumulus cloud. It's just a big, it looks like a mushroom cloud almost from an atomic bomb. And it's just rising and rising. And so I climbed up to the, the top of the peak and looked out and for just an hour watched this huge wildfire cloud just grow and grow and grow. And you could see it all across the Mount Jefferson area. And I remember thinking, okay, we're something's going on here. Like wildfire season isn't finished. And when I got home and started looking at the weather reports and started thinking about what was going to happen – it became clear that something something was going to happen. It wasn't clear what, but something. Yeah, it was probably around the same time the National Weather Service was, you know, the meteorologists there were kind of becoming concerned. Um, they started sort of predicting this wind event that was kind of sort of coincide with a period of super low humidity. Yeah. The combination of which we usually don't see here. No. Especially by early fall, things are starting to moisten back up. Things are going to start turning green after kind of crisping up over summer. Yeah, it was like all these things started coming together at once. You had Oregon, which has been in a deep drought all year. We've been writing about how far we are behind rainfall-wise. So you got the deep droughts. You got the fact that it's getting drier instead of wetter. And then you add this wind event, which just has no precedent. You know, we get big wind events in Oregon, but it's almost always from the Pacific and in the middle of the rainy season. You think of those crazy storms out on the Oregon coast. You know, they'll come inland and we'll get big wind, but it's always wet. And this was just something different. And so we have this once in a generation weather system coming in with all these ominous ingredients. And it's going to slam into this growing wildfire that I'd sit around watching the other day. I, you know, Forest Service officials started getting really, really nervous. They shut down the entire Mount Jefferson area and even planned to do some areas beyond that. 
because nobody knew what was going to happen. Something was going to happen, but it just wasn't clear what. The quote that I remember, and I wrote a story about it that Sunday, was it was like a hurricane hitting a wildfire, which that paints a picture. So officials, so emergency officials are definitely worried, but that's mostly in the forest because historically that's where our fires stay even when they get big. There just hasn't been any recent precedent for fires sweeping down into populated areas. They stay high on the mountains and they might be, get big and they might impact our air quality, but they generally stay there. And I think that's what we were predicting to happen. So on Monday, ahead of all this, we went ahead and sent a, a team of photographers out into the field, kind of on Zach's recommendation. And we were kind of expecting early stages, more smoke to fill kind of the Sanium Pass area, you know, just to kind of see what was going on. I think what I was sort of expecting is, you know, I've reported a lot on the B and B complex. That's the big fire that occurred in 2003 in the same area. And basically, it, that fire threw up a 90,000-foot protocumulus cloud. But it was still safe to be out there. Like, and so I was sort of hoping to get a picture of that because it's this very dramatic image and then, you know, you're sort of off to the races. But that's not really what happened. You know, you and me are there and we're kind of updating as Monday goes along. And it starts just like, a, again, another beautiful, perfect September day. There's, it's a holiday weekend. There's people out in the mountains. It's just it's beautiful. It's exactly what you want on that weekend. But slowly smoke starts creeping in and we're not sure exactly where it's coming from. And then you start to see, feel this really eerie wind. And it just felt like something strange was happening. We had one photographer, Virginia Beretta, who I had sent up uh, Stallman Peak above Detroit Lake. So it's a long hike to get up to this viewpoint. My idea was that she would get views of both wildfires if they exploded or, you know, blew up and threw up a big cloud. But she just got inundated with smoke, and so was everybody. So I told her, get out of there. It was just starting to feel really uneasy because things were filtering down, you know, into the valley. Yeah, actually, Monday afternoon, um, we were sort of short of reporters, so I went out to a commercial warehouse fire here in Salem. Mm -hmm. And it was about 5 p.m. that, you know, I was surrounded by smoke from this warehouse fire or whatever, but you notice the sky started turning orange. And that's about when all the air quality monitors started measuring an increase in particulates. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, this smoke is now here. Yeah, some, yeah, something was happening. And so by and large, Oregonians had been oblivious to this event. They weren't looking at the weather because it was beautiful out. They weren't really expecting anything to happen. And so these stories I'd been writing all day Monday, not very many people were reading them. And then all of a sudden, like... They just go crazy because people are feeling this weird energy. They're smelling the smoke. Everybody knows something's happening, but nobody is exactly sure what it is. The following message is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council. Did you know forest management enhances biodiversity after sustainable timber harvests? Modern, science-based forestry provides a mosaic of forest types and age classes across the landscape, benefiting a broad range of plants and animals. AFRC stands for Sustainable Forests and Healthy Communities. Learn more at amforest.org. So then as we kind of move into evening, that's when some of the alerts start rolling in. First, we saw down in the Eugene area, 
um, along the holiday fire, it sort of prompted a bunch of evacuations along Mackenzie Bridge, and then they actually shut down Highway 126. So, so it's evening, and you can tell the wind is picking up, things are happening, and my power went out. And it stayed out for about two or three hours. Didn't know when I was going to be able to, to get back uh, to work or anything, so kind of shut it down for a while. Did a little bit more work. My power came back on at uh, 11 p.m., did some work, but then kind of just dozed off. It didn't feel like a whole lot else was happening, but uh, that, was, that was just the beginning. Yeah, so I went ahead and picked up the baton uh, at that point. And so I'm kind of settling in for sort of a long evening, and I noticed they had issued an, evacu- an elevated evacuation notice for Detroit, right. but it said it wasn't supposed to take effect until Tuesday. Yeah, the next and day. And so that was a little curious. Um, and so, you know, we posted a story, updated it, and we're sort of watching, you know, as these things develop. You're and, watching. I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah. And I want to say it was around – it was before midnight – I noticed that ODOT had actually shut down Highway 22 from Mahama all the way up to Saniam Junction. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's curious. I start writing that update, and then probably 10 minutes later, we get the notice that the Marion County Sheriff's Office has issued level three get out now evacuation for pretty much all the small uh, towns along Highway 22 in the Sandium Canyon. And to put this in context, that om- that almost never happens because... We've, I've, we've never seen that. Yeah, because this there is a gradual process to this. As a fire grows and people get more concerned, there's level one, you know, be prepared. Like level two, be yeah. set, get set to go at any moment. And then level three is like the, the alarm bell, get out of there. But here it was zero to 100 in, in just like that. So I was still sleeping at that point, but... I, I don't know. When did you decide to text me? Uh, well, so I was writing the updates, sending the alerts, updating our social channels, trying to manage all that was coming in at that point. And again, details were kind of scant. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were getting the official notices, but there wasn't – there was sort of some chatter on some, some of the community Facebook groups. And the um, scanner. The scanner was definitely starting to yeah, blow up. Yeah. So and at that point, we could actually hear the Marion County Sheriff's Office sort of – rallying teams to go start banging on doors mm-hmm. and sort of start evacuating uh, some of those towns. And so I had, I had dozed off and I wake up to this this text from you saying... Yeah, I think I, I texted you. It was a little after 1 a.m. And you basically said, I think the Sanium Canyon's on fire. And it was... It began what was the strangest morning for me and a total nightmare for thousands of people who live just to our just to our east. So okay, so why don't we take a moment here to kind of explain what was happening on the ground at this point? Because it was really between 9:30 and 11 p.m. Labor Day night when things started to go very badly in the Sanium Canyon. Yeah, we've talked about how everyone was preparing for these two existing wildfires, both the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head mm-hmm. to grow and possibly become a problem. That's what everyone had sort of planned around. But really, something else ended up happening that night that was far worse. Right. So I think the best place to illustrate this is in Gates, where around 9.45 p.m., multiple people describe power lines coming down, transformers exploding in the shower of sparks that kick-started multiple fires. The most striking place this happened was at the Old Gates Elementary School, where a team of around 300 firefighters were stationed. 
They were actually working the original Beachy Creek fire. So we're talking about an elite team of wildland firefighters. And at 945, they're having a staff meeting when all of a sudden the power lines come down and it just starts major fires right there at the school, right at their incident command headquarters. They did fight it, but were eventually just overwhelmed by this firestorm that developed and were forced to evacuate. Around the same time, Potato Hill, which rises just right above Gates, it goes up in flames. And so this occurred in multiple places in the Sanium Canyon, and those flames just got whipped up on 75-mile-per-hour winds, and, you know, things went downhill from there. The description of what those hours were like for people in the way of the flames are truly harrowing. We've written a number of profiles from people trapped by fire, and they really paint a terrifying picture. Yeah, it was thousands of people basically waking up in the middle of the night and discovering that everything around them was on fire and just this mad dash to try and escape. One of the areas this was most terrifying was up the Little North Sanium Canyon. What happened there is that the wind knocked down these trees across the road. So you had people discovering the flames, trying to evacuate and getting stuck on, stuck on down trees. I wrote about a guy named Don Myron who, after getting trapped spent the night on a rock in the middle of the river, basically using a plastic chair to shield himself from this hurricane of embers. Another guy, a former teacher from Kaiser, also got stuck on a downed tree and literally ran four miles through flames to escape and had burns on 20% of his body. The Little Norfolk area was the worst by all accounts. All five people that died in this wildfire event were in that area. Again, because of the really awful combination of flames engulfing the entire canyon and downed trees that prevented people from escaping. As all of this is happening, we're just trying to keep up with this mad stream of information, trying to get a handle on what's happening. You know, we published this story saying there's multiple wildfires in the Sanium Canyon that are spreading fast. And I realize as I'm, I'm writing this that it's actually within striking distance of my house. So I got my wife and my kids up and I sent them to, to West Salem. And at that point, I got a text from my buddy Mike, who lives in Mill City, and he's just like, hey, I just had to evacuate. Here's some video. And the video he showed me, which I, I later posted on Twitter that morning, was like just the beginning of realizing how serious it was. It shows him driving basically through a tunnel of flames on Highway 22. And at that moment, you know, I'm also getting pictures of Detroit Lake basically on fire. And then you, you know that this is serious, that this is not just, you know, some of these fires that have grown the way we expected, that this is like uh, an event that we're always going to remember. And I remember I was just kept writing, kept working and updating. And I look outside and it's like 8 a.m. at this point, And I expect there to be some light, but it's still super dark, like the darkest night and just felt really spooky. And I realized I was on level two and I was like, okay, well, time to hand this off. I, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And then, of course, the fear is, you know, where does where does it stop? Yeah, because it's it, it the fire had reached Lyons and, you know, there were spot fires all over Lyons. At that point, they sort of raised the evacuation levels in, in Staten. Then it's, it's really coming into urban areas at that point. Yeah. We had to sort of cut through a bunch of rumors that were swirling around about when and where the evacuation levels were going to be raised. I think by morning, the fire advancement had settled down yeah. and we were sort of starting to cut to trying to wrap our head around the damage, really. It, it's true because it, it started moving towards Staten and then it moved northwest. It just 
for whatever reason, the winds changed, conditions changed, and it just it stopped moving directly west towards Staten, and then beyond that, Salem. So that was the that was that morning. It was chaotic, and it was just trying to figure out is Staten safe, and that was that was that was it. So in that time period, from Monday night until Tuesday morning, that's when the vast majority of damage was done in the Sanium Canyon. And basically, after that, moved northwest. And at this point, we basically have three giant fires on top of each other. We have the Lion's Head Fire, we have the Beachy Creek Fire, and then we had this newly started Sanium Fire. And it just created this corridor of wildfire, the likes of which we've never seen before. So by Tuesday morning, wildfires are still going around the state. And here at home, we're kind of starting to take stock in the damage done in the St. Am Canyon. Photos start coming in showing extensive destruction in Detroit, Gates, Mill City. And you start writing about what happened. What do we know so far? Yeah, we started piecing together exactly how this happened because it happened so fast. So to step back in time a little bit, there's, there's two active fires we're watching. We've got the Beachy Creek in the Opal Creek Wilderness, and then Lion's Head at Mount Jefferson area. Both of those fires blew up and ran miles. But the most destructive fires were actually from the down power lines. They actually started 13 different wildfires right on the canyon floor. So they, they you know, sparked and then they spread on these 50, 60 mile per hour winds and create just basically a firestorm that ran down the canyon. That they started right there explains why it was so fast and so difficult for people to know that they were there because they the fire started there instead of coming there. And that's why it was such a, a, a tough thing. We've done a lot of reporting on the power lines and the role they played and specifically why they weren't shut down. Where are we on that front? Right. So we know that power lines were turned off in a number of places across the state, including Mount Hood. Some power lines were also shut down in the Sanium Canyon, uh, the ones operated by Consumers Power. But the main provider in that area, Pacific Power, did not shut down their power lines. They basically said the Sanium Canyon wasn't in a power safety shutoff area. The areas they considered dangerous enough to consider these pretty drastic actions of shutting down power. And so even though there was this extreme weather event that had been predicted for three days, they, they chose not to shut it down. We wrote a story with a lot more detail on that subject, and uh, there was actually a class action lawsuit that was filed against them. It's worth mentioning that it's still unclear where one fire started and the other began. A final report's expected on the subject, and it hasn't come yet, but we'll be covering it as soon as it does. You have all three of these fires that are blowing up at once, Beachy Creek, Lion's Head, and then the power line fire that was briefly called the Sanium Fire. So those all three of them eventually merged together, forming this one giant fire that at this point is almost 500,000 acres, which is the same size as the Biscuit Fire, this very famous wildfire in southwest Oregon that was previously considered like the standard for all massive wildfires. Like that fire was how you measured every other wildfire in Oregon. And now we have totally surpassed that because that one occurred in, you know, a roadless wilderness area, destroyed a lot of forest, but not like this, where it really came into a populated area. Obviously, we're still kind of just at the beginning of a lot of this. And this trio of wildfires is just one of the major wildfires that lit up. But from what you've been able to kind of observe as these areas have reopened, what's the future? What kind of landscape are we going to be looking at? I mean, a lot of homes and businesses were lost. This area is never going to be exactly the same as it was. 
I was up in Detroit the first day people were allowed to return, and it was shocking. There's huge gaps in the middle of what used to be downtown because of burned down buildings. It does look a little bit like a war zone. At the same time, plenty of places did survive in Lyons, Mill City, and even up in Detroit. And look, people are already talking about rebuilding. There, there was a lot of resiliency up in Detroit and optimism about the future. This area is going to come back because people love that area. Detroit Lake itself is still pretty green. And once you get outside Detroit, the fire damage isn't nearly as bad as you head up towards Mount Jefferson. The upper North Sanium above Detroit looks pretty normal. It's not like everything is gone by any stretch of the imagination. So speaking of which, and you hate to talk about it since it's kind of small potatoes compared to people's lives, but what about recreation in the area? It's a huge part of that area's economy and really what draws folks out there. Yeah. I mean, that piece is tough and it's important. It's why people live and visit that area. It's the outdoor beauty. That's that's why I moved out to that area. And it's tough because the fire basically wiped out the network of parks and campgrounds along the North Sanium River, like Fisherman's Bend, Pack Saddle, North Sanium State Park. That area is going to take a long time to rebuild. It, the fire burned really hot between Detroit and Gates. It killed almost all the trees. It's, that's going to take a while. In another beloved area, the Little North and Opal Creek area, there was also extensive damage, including to bridges that access it. There's no timetable at all for that area opening, and it probably won't be anytime soon. But I mean, look, we've had big wildfires out in the forest before, and wildfires are a natural part of the ecosystem. So the forest itself is, is going to heal long term. That's not really the concern. I think the big question is just how and when this network of parks, roads, bridges, and trails will be rebuilt. I mean, it might be a really long time. As someone, again, who lives in that area and loves it and who loves fishing on the North Sanium and camping on, at Detroit, it's just tough because it's not going to be the same place and it's going to take a while to come back. We just have to do our best, give it time to heal and, you know, roll up our sleeves, I guess. All right. That's about all the time we have left on this episode of the Explore Oregon podcast. This was a bit of a departure from our usual topics, but we'll soon be back to our usual coverage of the best outdoor recreation in Oregon. Check out previous episodes at statesmanjournal.com slash explore for plenty of great ideas to plan your next adventure. You can also find us at Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes as they become available. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for the environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org.